Welcome to the QuackCast, a skeptical and sarcastic evaluation of quacks, frauds, and charlatans. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean alternative and complementary medicine, or as I heard on the Skeptic Tank this week, you have to include supplements. So supplements, complementary, and alternative medicines. Who can pass up an acronym like that? Not this fat boy. This podcast is dated January 2007, and this time I'm going to cover herbs, or herbs. Brought to you as a side project of Puswar LLC, publisher of the Personal Flagers Annotated Compendium of Infectious Disease Facts, Opinion, and Dogma. Your Uber hyperlinked electronic guide to infectious diseases at puswar.com, where you will find the Personal Flagers podcast, a bi-weekly review of infectious diseases, CME accredited. If you're sick of this, feel free to search ahead on your iPod to the next chapter. But if you do a search of podcasts and medicine, the bulk of results will point you to many sites of complementary and alternative medicine, which are mostly garbage. There is the excellent Quack Watch, the source of all things quackery, and there are a few other skeptical sites, such as the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe and Skepticality being the best I have found. I also really like ratbags.com. Those Australians know how to be a sarcastic bunch. But there's a lack of podcasts that look specifically and skeptically at alternative medicine. And this is a shame, for to judge from the medical school in my neck of the woods, critical thinking and alternative medicine do not seem to go together. So you are in luck. I'm an infectious disease doctor with a long interest in things skeptical, and I have been honing my podcast skills for the last year with my infectious disease podcasts at Pusswear.com, by the way. So I've decided to branch out my podcasting into the other area of life and medicine that interests me, and I have embarked upon what appear to be an increasingly verbose and wordy series of podcasts on alternative medicine. As Baruch Spinoza said, quote, I have made a ceaseless effort not to ridicule, not to bewail, nor to scorn human actions, but to understand them, end quote. This does not apply to me. Ridicule and scorn are two of my favorite approaches to alt-med. It's so stupid and requires a healthy dose of evidence-based ridicule. Or as Thomas Jefferson said on another topic, Ridicule is the only weapon that can be used against unintelligible propositions. Ideas must be distinct before reasons can act upon them. Unquote. And there's nothing as indistinct and unintelligible as most of alternative medicine. Now, references are on the show notes page, and some old podcasts are there as well. If you want an MP3 to play on non-iPods, they're available on my .Mac public folder. There's a link on the website. Also on the website is an occasional blog offering versions of drivel that I have written elsewhere. The last two are Deconstruction of Airborne and Why Scams Piss Me Off So Much. Now on to the vicious screed. Now when I say herbal remedies, I'm saying remedies in quotes, like, quote, fresh fish, unquote. I asked the guy at the grocery store, is the fish fresh? He says, oh, it's fresh frozen. Well, you know, that's good. At least you didn't let the fish putrefy before you stuck it in the freezer. So if I say remedies in this podcast, every time you hear that word remedies, pretend I am making quote marks with my fingers. Now call them herbs or herbs. Unlike some forms of scam, herbal remedies cannot be dismissed out of hand on the basis of a lack of plausibility. Many a real drug has its origin in the trees. They kind of sound like uh, the Lorax here. Shrubs and plants. I would insert a bush joke here, but for some odd reason, people seem sensitive to comments directed against the vegetable in chief. Now, I give antibiotics for a living, most of which are derived from bacteria or fungi. 
When I get home at the end of a hard day, treating symptoms rather than treating the underlying disease and ignoring the whole person, I enjoy some form of yeast excrement. So each herb or herb needs to be evaluated on its own merits. This, unfortunately, is not as enjoyable to write. It does require a measured response to determine whether or not a given herb is beneficial. Some of these products probably do deserve some thoughtful consideration, and there is more gray with herbs than there are with other scams. Still, there are some generic issues with herbal products. The first is that natural products vary greatly in the amount of active ingredient they contain. They vary from year to year, batch to batch, location to location. Do you want an 83 Bordeaux or a 92? Do you want a Bordeaux or a Napa Valley wine? It's all about the terreur, n'est-ce pas? Tell me, do you want dope from Maui or grown under lamps in a Wisconsin addict? That's a joke, a joke. I can just see some irate naturopath calling the Oregon board saying I was a dope smoker. J-O-K-E, joke, enough said. But because of this natural variability, when you get an herbal product, you never know what you're going to get from bottle to bottle and manufacturer to manufacturer. It's the same with wine. It's the same with herbal remedies. Occasionally, what the label says has little correlation with what's really in the bottle. There is no standardization of these products. As an example, a recent abstract at IDSA looked at what was in the bottle of probiotics. The organism on the label was not what was isolated, and often these live organisms could not be grown. Other than selling live organisms, they were selling corpses. <gasps> oh. Now, I know that these are not herbs, but I love this example. Now, at least with Twinkies and pharmaceuticals, you get what's on the label. And besides the lack of standardization, there's no way to know if they have other contaminants in the herbal products. There have been many studies that have looked at herbal preparations and found all sorts of interesting contaminations, including belladonna, microorganisms such as staph, salmonella, and shigella, bacterial toxins like aflatoxins, which are known to cause liver cancer. You can find pesticides in these products, organic phosphates, insecticides, herbicides. You can find fumigation products like ethylene oxide. You can find toxic metals like lead, cadmium, mercury, and arsenic. And sometimes they put in real drugs, often veterinary drugs, such as anti-inflammatories, so that they have the effect that's advertised. Yes, they put in real drugs, often to have the desired effects. These preparations are made from a far lower standard than Coca-Cola or tomatoes in the store. You want quality assurance? Not applicable to herbal preparations. Bon appetit. A Twinkie is starting to look pretty good at this point. And remember... Herbs and dietary supplements are not, not, not regulated by the FDA. They have an extremely low bar they have to jump over, standards so low that if applied to the NBA, I would be a starting center for the Miami Heat. They do not, not, not have to prove safety, and they do not, not, not have to prove efficacy. Really, they do not have to be safe or show that they work. The manufacturer can say on the product that it affects the structure or function of the body as long as they don't say that it has effectiveness in prevention or treatment of a specific disease. And they have to put a disclaimer to that effect informing the user that the FDA has not evaluated the product, usually in print that I can't read with my bifocals. So they can say that they provide liver health or boost the immune system or natural male enhancement. Right. I mean, the last one is certainly not true because when I took, oh, oh, so sorry, never mind, too much information. 
But if you're not paying attention, you might mistakenly think that these herbs do something. They might, but they might not. Well, what's the data? Let's look at some of the better studied herbs, shall we? Echinacea, ginkgo, St. John's wort, saw palmetto, glucosamine, and black cohat. Echinacea. Well, I covered this in podcast number two. Doesn't work. However, the rationale for the use of echinacea is the Plains Indians of North America used echinacea for fevers and sore throats and respiratory infections. So it must work, or else why would they have used it? Damn you, Rousseau, and your noble savage at one with the environment. <clears throat> echinacea is present in virtually all the combo products for boosting the immune system, airborne and its ilk. It is one of the few that can be said to perhaps, maybe possibly, to have been proven to be useful if you quote older, poorly done studies, ignore recent definitive studies, which, surprise, surprise, showed a complete lack of efficacy. The Annals of Internal Medicine of 2002, they did the first of two definitive tests. In this study, they compared placebo, which was alfalfa. No, it's not the kid from the Our Gang shows. Everyone knows only Spanky can prevent colds. But they compared alfalfa to echinacea in a randomized controlled trial in college students with a cold. Did zip. Same symptom duration, same severity of symptoms. And this was as good as any clinical study can get. However, people objected. And the letters to the editors, an amusing place to read as to why people don't believe clinical trials. They challenged deeply held beliefs about efficacy of therapies and they didn't like the study. It was the wrong preparation. They should have used echinacea drops. They should have used some other placebo because alfalfa prevents cold. As I said, it's really spanky that does that. They also pointed out that it should have been used as a prophylactic, not as a treatment. So the New England Journal then published the definitive preventative study. They squirted one of the many common causes of the common cold into people's nose, rhinovirus 39, and they compared this to placebo and saw whether echinacea did anything. Guess what? Nope, nothing. Was that good enough? No. According to the letters, they did it wrong again. They gave the wrong dose. They didn't try other virus. They used the wrong preparation. They used the wrong species of echinacea. And in my mind, these studies are as definitive as you get in clinical medicine, which, believe you me, is not so easy. Now, I think all of their complaints could have been addressed if they had isolated the active ingredient of echinacea, did trials to determine the safety, the mechanism of action, and the pharmacokinetics, tested it in a test tube in an animal model to see what the effects and dose might be, and then tested the product in large controlled trials using the active ingredient in a well-defined patients with a well-diagnosed disease. Hey, wait, that's what those SOBs in Big Pharma do. Damn, maybe the medical industrial complex does some right things after all. And that's one of the reasons that these herbs tick me off. They bypass all the usual steps in determining whether a drug is effective and jump straight to the clinical trials. If they'd used a more standard approach like Big Pharma, maybe they wouldn't have had to waste all this money as they would have demonstrated long before that the product is worthless. Now, best I can tell, at least, echinacea is without any side effects and without any important drug interactions. Now, any therapy that has no side effects, especially drug therapy, is probably going to have no therapeutic effect as well. Any therapy worth its salt is going to have the potential to hurt you. Sorry, welcome to medicine. There are always too many overlaps of the sites of drug action to think they will only work on one problem with no side effect. We have a name for substances that we can consume with no adverse or therapeutic effects. It's called food. I bet, but cannot prove, that Big Pharma has long ago dissected echinacea and found nothing of value. 
It would be too much money that they could make from being the first to find the cure for the common cold. However, I still recommend echinacea. It's a beautiful flower, and my wife uses it as an accent in the garden. It's really quite pretty. Ginkgo. Well, evidently, the ginkgo biloba tree is one of the oldest tree species to still be alive on Earth, with evidence that being alive 200 million years ago. It has been used over the centuries for a hodgepodge of diseases, but the latest push has been that of using it for memory. I will spare you the lame I forget jokes. Well, maybe. But its raison d'etre is to help flog the fading brain. It supposedly increases blood flow to the brain with resultant improvement in memory, an indication that was just made up in the 1960s to sell the drug. Is it true? Does it help memory? Well, this one isn't clear-cut, and the data to support its use is interesting, but so far clinical trials have not shown the efficacy that you would like. There are a large number of cell studies and animal studies that suggest some interesting effects of extract of ginkgo, or one of the products found in the ginkgo, on endothelial cells, the cells that line blood vessels, artery size, protection of neurons from various forms of damage, and perhaps it improves memory in animals. Other drugs have similar effects, but don't help memory. So it's a big leap of faith to think that ginkgo would be of benefit. Often in medicine, we extrapolate from the test tubes in animals to human treatment, so-called biologic plausibility. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes it turns out to be harmful. So I am usually hesitant to take the jump, except in desperate situations, and even then I tend to be conservative. Generally speaking, if you do a therapeutic intervention where you have no data to support your therapy, you're probably going to do more harm than good. Test tube studies and animal studies usually fall way short of expectation when the eventual clinical studies are done. So what about ginkgo? The best study to date was published in JAMA and showed that over a six-week period, ginkgo was no better than placebo at improving memory in normal elderly people. Whether it would work longer term or not is unknown. How about in patients with Alzheimer's disease? Well, small studies have shown some promise, while others have shown no efficacy. Currently, there's a long-term study on the NIH to see if ginkgo slows or prevents Alzheimer's in the elderly. There are two smaller studies that show perhaps some benefit, but the big study is ongoing and what will hopefully be the definitive study. While I'm not optimistic, there may be some biologic and clinical studies to warrant the studies, to show efficacy in the Alzheimer's, but I predict right now that they will show no benefit because I am psychic. So do I recommend it? No. It has many complications, including bleeding and some important drug-drug interactions. And which part of the plant, as well as which of the subproducts, may be a benefit is not known here. I always wonder about the wisdom of doing large, expensive clinical trials based primarily, however, on the fact that the ancients thought it was effective. The ancient Chinese used ginkgo biloba, it must be good. Let's try it. Wouldn't it be a bummer if NASA used this criteria for determining research? The answer to dark matter was evaluated today by a new NASA satellite. Based on the premise that the ancient Native Americans believed the Earth was supported on the back of a giant turtle, the Turtle Dark Matter Explorer, or the Turd Me, I can't pass up the infantile jokes, was launched to discover whether the Earth was indeed on the back of a giant turtle made up of dark matter. Although $50 million was expended on the project, initial measurements and photographs yield no evidence of the turtle. Proponents of the dark matter 
turtle theory, point out, however, that if the turtle were always on the other side of the Earth relative to the explorer, it could never be detected. To further evaluate this possibility, NASA is planning to launch five satellites in 2010 at a cost of $150 million that will evaluate the whole globe simultaneously, ruling out the possibility that there is indeed a dark matter turtle hiding behind the Earth. I mean, really, is scams any different in the rationale behind doing the clinical testing? The ancients did not know a burrow from a burrow. I find the whole process depressing, which is a good thing that we have St. John's wart. Wart. Wart, not wart. W-O-R-T. Not only is wort a mash of barley and hops before the yeast is added to the beer, and that will leave my depression, thank you very much, it is also an archaic term for a herb. I much prefer it. It would be nicer if these people were practicing wortology rather than herbology. St. John's wort is named after the red resin that is contained in the small glands of the St. John's flower. In the Middle Ages, it was said to have been the blood of St. John the Baptist when he was beheaded and probably a source of hepatitis C. It has been used as an antibiotic, specifically worms and dysentery, an anti-inflammatory and an antidepressant. I'd like to take this opportunity to point out that the pathophysiology of inflammation, diarrhea, and depression are radically different. This is because, as I've said before, the ancients did not know a burrow from a burrow, i.e. an ass from the hole in the ground. When you read that the ancients treated different diseases with a given therapy, do not believe it for a second. The concept of a disease is new and only been present for a couple hundred years at best. To say that someone has a disease requires a knowledge of anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, histology, microbiology, developmental biology, etc., etc., Read the textbooks of the time. They have zero understanding of the concept of disease as it relates to abnormal physiology and abnormal anatomy with common causes. Not surprisingly, as the ancients had no concept of the underlying processes and how they could be abnormal to cause the disease. They had no idea what our modern concept of disease is. And while many diseases have a final common manifestation, the treatments are radically different. Bacteria, viruses, fungi, heart attacks, lupus, lymphoma can all cause fever. Only the stupid or unnatural path would be ignorant enough to treat them as the same disease. The ancients had no idea what they were doing, and since they had no epidemiology, they never really knew if the therapy worked or not. Be that as it may, St. John's is touted as useful in depression. True? Well, the data is not definitive, but certainly suggestive. Early small studies suggested benefit, and then better studies have shown variable effect. One in JAMA in 2002 compared St. John's wort to an antidepressant, sertraline, and found that it had no efficacy in major depression. However, two other studies in the British Medical Journal compared it to the new SSRIs and placebo and found that St. John's wort was non-inferior, that's the new jargon for medications, to the SSRI, and it was superior to placebo in major depressions. And there are also reasonable studies to suggest that St. John's wort is effective in mild to moderate depression. And several meta-analyses have shown that perhaps it is a benefit in depression that is superior to placebo. I think these studies are interesting in that they most closely resemble drug studies in that they use specific alcohol-derived extracts of the St. John's wort. They don't just give people a handful of dried 
flower petals, they find specific alcohol extracts and then compare these to standard antidepressants in a group of well-defined patients. Unfortunately, in different studies, they've used slightly different extracts so that there's not a lot of ability to compare from study to study what the active ingredient may or may not have been. There are several putative agents in St. John's wort that may be helpful in depression. Hyperforin, which I'm probably mispronouncing, as well as some other extracts that are found in alcohol would perhaps be the active ingredient or the drug in St. John's wort that's effective for depression. I wonder, but cannot find evidence, whether if regular St. John's wort would only be effective if you take it with a quart of alcohol, since most of the extracts have to be dissolved in alcohol before you can use them in human beings. Like aspirin and willow bark, it would appear that the closer they get to isolating the active ingredient in St. John's wort, the better the effect. Is it side effect free? No. So a hint that it might be doing something. And it also has a ton of drug-drug interactions. Another hint that it might be doing something. The more dangerous a drug, the more likely it is to be of benefit. My overall take on St. John's wort is that it may be beneficial for the treatment of depression, but which product in the drug is the best and how to take it is not clear cut. Again, if they just treated these drugs like drugs, rather than some sort of natural product, maybe we'd know what the benefit of taking them was. Saw Palmetto. Sounds like a jazz player. Now I'm getting close to 50 faster than I care to contemplate. I'm starting to worry about my prostate. It's going to get bigger and bigger, and someday, no more writing in the snow. And by the way, it's prostate, not prostrate. It has one R at the beginning. Now, saw palmetto is supposed to be effective in relieving the symptoms of benign prosthetic hypertrophy. As you get older, your prostate gets big, and you have increased urinary frequency and decreased flow. Boy, growing old sucks. Beats the alternative. But anyway, you don't listen to this podcast to hear the angst-ridden existential ramblings of a demented ID doctor. For that, go put on a Smith CD. Native Americans in Florida used it for a hodgepodge of diseases. Many, as always, is the case with ancient remedies, with discordant causes and responses. They used atrophy of the testes, impotence, inflammation of the prostate, low libido, infertility in women to increase lactation as an anti-inflammatory, as an appetite stimulant, I guess they didn't have marijuana, and as a toxic and expectorant for mucous membranes. So they use it for a wide variety of things, all of which have, as usual, different pathophysiologies, which would make it suspect that the drug would be a benefit. Then, Dr. Edward M. Hale wrote a monograph on saw palmetto in the 1880s. As best I can tell, he just made up that it would be useful for prostate problems. I can't tell what basis he did it, as I cannot get a copy of the original monograph, but from here it took off and became very popular in Europe, much like fascism did for a while. Now, its raison d'etre is BPH, which is benign prosthetic hypertrophy and hair loss in men. Would that it were true. Now, supposedly, in the test tube, it interferes with the synthesis of testosterone and its byproducts. It also evidently blocks the testosterone receptor. But does this make a clinical difference? Well, this is the usual thing you see in alternative medicines. Small studies poorly done, maybe works, maybe didn't. 
Then they did the big study in the New England Journal of Medicine. They compared the standard dose of saw palmetto, 160 milligrams twice a day versus placebo for a year. And it did, as the British would say, not. Now, they did two things in these patients. They measured their symptoms, how they felt they were doing with the American Urological Association Symptom Index. And then they also looked at objective findings like maximal urinary flow rate, changes in prostate size, residual urinary volume, and laboratory values. And here's where this test got interesting. By objective testing, nobody got better. They all had the same maximal urinary flow rate. They all had the same prostate size. They all had the same values on their labs. Subjectively, this even where it gets more interesting. In the month before they were actually randomized to receive drug or placebo, everybody took placebo, but they didn't know it. And they all got better subjectively. Not objectively, but subjectively. And for the next six months, both groups got better subjectively, then, by the end of therapy, they were back to the baseline. During this time, none of the objective findings of the efficacy of this drug changed a drop of urine. Now, if a tree falls in the forest and there is no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Well, it doesn't. Bob and Ray proved that old conundrum in the 50s. But here's the interesting question from this study. If a patient is subjectively better but objectively unchanged, are they better? If a patient is objectively better, but subjectively unchanged, are they better? It's a good question when you're doing clinical trials. It depends in part on what you're measuring, but I would tend to say that if you subjectively feel better, but objectively you're unchanged, you're not better. I can make you feel good, but you can get a lot worse clinically. But I think this, the results of this study have an insight into the alleged effects of scams. People will believe that they are better whether they are or not. That sounds kind of odd, I know. But what separates humans from other animals, as I've heard before, is the ability of self-delusion. Okay, three down, two more to go. Maybe I should have cut this up into several other podcasts, but I do so love the sound of my own voice. So next up, glucosamine and chondroitin. Is supposed to help osteoarthritis. What's osteoarthritis? Well, that's as your joints wear out over time. The cartilage breaks down, your joints whittle away, and soon you have bone on bone. Everyone I know is the next football player. I'm sure in Europe the problem is in soccer players. And the thought was, well, since glucosamine and chondroitin are in joints and you wear it away with osteoarthritis, perhaps by taking these products it would be of benefit by supplying a missing joint component. Well, that's a nice idea, and perhaps it would work if the end product were delivered to the joint would be of benefit. But generally speaking, the body synthesizes everything it needs on site from primitive precursors and doesn't use the products that you eat. When you eat steak, the muscle you eat doesn't go to the muscle as muscle. It's broken down to constituents products, then reconstructed as your meat. That's what your muscles are, you know, meat. So the rationale in using glucosamine and chondroitin, to my mind, is similar to thinking that a good treatment for baldness would be to eat hair or to cure a cut to eat skin. Mmm, pork skin. So studies that were done were of questionable benefit, as always. And unfortunately, they were sponsored by the makers of chondroitin and glucosamine. Why does that matter? 
Well, if you review medical studies, it indicates that the more manufacture of an agent is involved in a clinical study, the better the outcomes for the tested agent. It's nice to see, at least, that scams suffer from the same bias and corruption as we see in big pharma-sponsored studies. But always look to see who sponsored the study. And if a company has sponsored the drug, they're more likely to get a beneficial outcome for their drug than if they weren't sponsors of the drug. But to quote from a New England Journal of Medicine meta-analysis of the studies evaluating the efficacy of glucosamine and chondroitin, quote, Studies evaluating the efficacy of these supplements for osteoarthritis suggested potential benefit from these agents, but raised questions about the scientific quality of the studies. What? Scientific quality of the study suspect? I feel like Louis in Casablanca. I'm shocked, shocked to find gambling going on here. Same old stuff, different day. So what they did was a study comparing glucosamine, chondroitin alone, or combined versus placebo, versus an anti-inflammatory in about 1,500 patients with knee degenerative joint disease. And overall, it did nothing compared to placebo. Overall, interestingly enough, 60% in the placebo wing got better, and the anti-inflammatory they used was definitely superior. It is interesting, however, that in a subgroup who had moderate to severe pain, the combination of glucosamine and chondroitin led to less pain and less swelling. Is this true? Well, I don't know. The number of patients who had moderate to severe disease was small and could have been a statistical fluke, or it could have been the real deal. So what's the take-home message? Well, maybe it's useful in patients with severe degenerative joint disease. And the study did cost $12 million to complete. That's a serious chunk of change, but it takes a serious chunk of change to do the clinical trials needed to prove efficacy or lack of efficacy of these scams. Now, we're up to the last one on the list, black cohash. And the rationale for black cohash is that the Native Americans, who are at one with their environment, deep in the mists of time, treated a hodgepodge of symptoms that have entirely different pathophysiologies and symptoms with black cohash. They use malaise, kidney ailments, rheumatism, malaria, sore throat, infectious diseases, backaches, but its current reason is to prevent the symptoms of menopause, hot flashes, night sweats, etc. Its mechanism of action is unknown at the time of the study that was done in the annals. The question is, does it work? Again, the answer is no. They compared black cohash to a multi-botanical with black cohash that contained not only black cohash, but nine other ingredients. They probably took airborne, not really, just joking. They took a multi-botanical with dietary soy plus counseling. They used hormone replacement with estrogen or they used placebo. And none of the botanicals did squat for menopause symptoms. So it would appear that black cohash doesn't work and it would appear that multi-botanicals do not work. And dietary soy, which is supposed to have phytoestrogens, i.e. estrogens derived from plant products, None of them did anything for the treatment of, of menopausal symptoms. Now, what were the flaws according to the authors of this article? The flaw was, and here I quote, the trial did not simulate the whole person approach used by naturopathic physicians, unquote. What the hell is that? And that's a flaw? I know the reason that was put in there is the one of the articles is a naturopathic choke gag doctor wretch. Now, what the whole person approach is, quote, counseling the patient about diet, exercise, and emotional issues related to menopause. 
dose revisions, and additional supplements that are important aspects of the naturopathic strategy for managing menopausal symptoms, end quote. Like, that's different from what I do? Like, that's different from what any good doctor does? No. This really fries my bacon, especially in the annals, the alleged journal of the internal medicine, the ABIM. They're perpetuating this false dichotomy that real doctors don't do these kind of interventions and only quacks, no, I'm sorry, naturopaths are able to do the kind of whole person interventions required in the treatment of diseases. This kind of implied anti-MD bias just makes me apoplectic. Yet another reason is if I need any more to feel that the editors of the Annals of Internal Medicine have lost a little of their credibility. They always throw a bone to the quack. So, where do we stand in the review? Echinacea? Crap. Ginkgo? Maybe, but I bet not. St. John's wort? Maybe, and I bet it will. Saw palmetto? Crap. Glucosamine chondroitin? Maybe, but I bet not. Black cohash? Crap. However, some caveats. First, these studies will probably convince no one. All the money that has been spent on these studies, for example, $12 million in the Saw Palmetto study, are probably just flushed down the toilet. And this waste of money could all be prevented if herbals followed the same arc of development required of normal medications. Identification of the active substance, its mechanism of action, its pharmacokinetics, its true efficacy, are lost in a morass of uncertainty because of the potential for variability in the herbs being tested while the clinical trials are as definitive as one would hope, the vagaries of the tested substances give practitioners an out and skeptics a pause. And so what is one to make of a person who, for example, swears by their black cohash? Are they self-deluded, remembering hits and forgetting failures? Does their particular preparation have an active ingredient that the study preparation did not? There was a recent article that suggested that black cohash might interact with opiate receptors to alter symptoms, and this might be a mechanism of action, or maybe not. Who can say, given the vagaries of herbal preparations? Is it the continued problem of trying to apply population results to the individual? We are each different in more ways than the trivial approach of the naturopath. For example, genes code proteins. My genes are not the same as your genes, so the proteins you make are not the same as the proteins I make. These subtle differences in the genes are called polymorphisms. This is all part of intelligent design. Now, in my world, whether you live or die from an infection may very well depend on what kind of polymorphism you have. My current favorite example is snot. If your genes code for one kind of snot, your chance of developing disseminated meningococcus and dying is markedly increased, and if you have the other kind of snot, it's not. And this is because one kind of snot can help prevent infections, whereas the other kind of snot cannot. I sound like Dr. Seuss here. I suppose that someone will now sell the right kind of snot as a preventative. The point of this digression, however, is choosing the right medication may not be as simple as we think. There may be people for whom one medication will work and another for whom it will not because the polymorphisms that alter the active site of the medication. So who can say with the black cohash, for example, there may be a subgroup of people and a subgroup of black cohash whose active ingredient, if there is such a thing, will 
work to prevent symptoms. But black cohash and the whole herbal remedy is such a morass of vagaries that we probably will never know. If we could sort this out, we would get a better understanding of polymorphisms, which will help choose medications that work in which subset of people, and will help in the perpetual problem of medicine of applying group data to the individual. Or maybe not, but it's an interesting idea. Whoa, almost 40 minutes. That's a long one. No email of note. I've gotten a lot of nice, kind, and supportive emails and reviews, and I thank everyone very much. I finally got my one bad review on iTunes. Angry and rude? Moi? C'est pas possible. But I finally feel like I've come of age because I finally had the bad review I wanted. So this brings us to the end of the Quack Cast, an occasional review and rant on alternative medicine. Brought to you as a side project of Pusware.com, where you will find the Persiflagers podcast, a bi-weekly review of infectious diseases, where you can even get type 1 CME free. Copyright 2007, the Creative Commons. References are on the show notes and can be linked from quackcast.com. Old podcasts are archived there as well. Send your hate mail, spam, and questions about quackery to knowitall at quackcast.com. I may answer it on the podcast. I may write you a letter. If you send me an email, I feel that I've had permission to publish it on my website. Feedback would be of great interest, both positive and negative, and I do try and incorporate some of the comments. I wouldn't mind being accused of being a tool of the medical industrial complex if you see fit. Oh, and please, stop calling me doctor. Nobody calls me doctor. Except for some nurses who have this way of saying doctor the same way I would say butthead. It's a skill that some nurses have. But I'm usually either Mark or, hey you, fat boy. The music is by my son when he was 12, improvising on the guitar. Now, if you excuse me, I need to go out and get my infusion of hops and barley, the herbs that really count. Thank you. In dictation, goodbye.